here's a little question to uh, just get your mind going a little bit as we begin to consider these words from Philippians. Is a darts player an athlete? Is a darts player an athlete? Now, I don't want to presume to speak for all darts players and uh, I don't want to necessarily be dogmatic about the answer here. But let's work with the stereotype of what a darts player is like. The stereotypical darts player is a huge fat man who drinks 20 pints a day. Such a person, personally, I wouldn't say is an athlete. Why is a darts player not an athlete? They're, they're playing professional sports, if, you, if you're willing to call darts a sport. Why are they not an athlete? Well, surely because one of the defining features of an athlete is that they are athletic. And that stereotypical image of the darts player is certainly not athletic. He lacks the defining features of what it means to be a darts player. Now, I want to talk this evening, really, not about darts players or sports or athletics or anything like that. I want to talk about one of the defining features of Christianity. Is it possible for an isolated believer to be a Christian? Now, there are all sorts of qualifications you might make to that statement. Well, there are Christians around the world who are cut off from family, friends and churches. They're imprisoned because of oppression or a regime that seeks to stamp out Christianity. There are some Christians who, because of their family circumstances, it's just too risky for them to go and meet with other believers. And of course, there are believers around the world who are isolated from other Christians. But those exceptions seem to prove the rule. That in the New Testament... There is not really any place under normal circumstances. There is not really any place for believers to be isolated from other believers. One of the defining features of Christianity is unity. Unity is one of the defining features of Christianity. Now that stands to reason. Because if you think about what the gospel is all about and what God is doing in saving people, well, how would you summarise what God is doing? There are all sorts of words that we might use for that. You know, we might talk about God's uh, forgiveness that he offers. We might talk about salvation. We might talk about new birth. But why is God doing those things? Why is he forgiving us? Why is he uh, offering us salvation? What does that salvation mean? Saved from what? Saved towards what? One of the key ideas of what God is doing in the gospel is that he is reconciling humanity to himself. He is bringing peace. He is eliminating that barrier that separates God from mankind. He is drawing us back into a relationship with himself. And so when John at the end of Revelation has the the great vision of uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, The the amazing thing that John sees is that the dwelling of God is now with man and he will be their God and they will be his people and he will wipe the tears from their eyes. The gospel is all about God bringing peace, bringing unity, bringing forgiveness, showing love so that mankind can be brought back into relationship with God. Now, if that is what God is doing between between humans and mankind, uh, between between humans and God, 
then it stands to reason that unity, peace, forgiveness, love, generosity ought to be a feature of God's people among themselves. If that is what God has shown to us, one of the defining features of God's people ought to be the very same traits. Love, forgiveness, unity. It makes sense in terms of reason, in terms of thinking about the gospel. It is also something that is seen strongly in the passage that we read from Philippians. If you've got your Bibles open, have a look at chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, whatever happens... Whether you're persecuted, whether I end up getting executed, uh, whether I am cut off from you uh, forever and don't get a chance to see you or speak to you or write to you again. uh, Whatever heresies attack your church, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, what would that look like if I'm conducting myself in a manner worthy of the gospel? He carries on. Then if you're doing this. I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Gospel living is unity between believers. A life that is worthy of the gospel is a life that is lived in one spirit with other believers, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. And this unity Serves as a sign, Paul says. Uh, It's a sign to them, that is the oppressors. I'm looking at verse 28 now. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. The, The church has this unity. It's a picture of the unity that the church has with God. It's a picture that the believers within the church share with one another. And when the world looks at the church, this is a sign to them that they are, they are outside of that unity. They are enemies. They do not have the peace. They don't have the peace with the other believers, but they also don't have the peace with God. And so it's a sign that they will be destroyed. It's also a sign to you, believers. If you share this unity amongst yourselves, that is evidence that you also have this unity with God. If you are able to demonstrate that peace with one another, you know that you have received the peace from God himself. It goes on in chapter 2. Make my joy complete, he says. Chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete. If you do this one thing, I will be pleased. I will consider my work having been worthwhile. Make my joy complete. How? By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Make my joy complete by being united with each other. And his argument here in verse 1 and 2 is really quite, really quite powerful. Parents, perhaps you've made this argument uh, before. Uh, young people, perhaps you've heard this argument from your parents. Uh, children are squabbling and the parent comes along and says, look, haven't I done enough for you already? Haven't I bought you each lots of good things to play and to enjoy? Haven't I put you in this big house, each with your own bedroom, your own space, with a massive garden outside to go out and play in? Haven't I taught you your whole life to share and to be kind to one another? If I've done all this for you, then can't you just stop squabbling over these little insignificant things? Can't you just be kind to one another and share with one another? If I've given you all these things that are necessary for you to be able to do it, then why can't you put it into action? And Paul's argument is really the same. 
if you, and really when he says if, it could be translated since. Since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, since Christ has offered to share his identity with you, since Christ has offered to take all your sin and shame and guilt upon himself, since you've received that encouragement of being accepted by him, since you have the comfort of the love of God guiding you, nurturing you, providing for you, acknowledging you, valuing you, if you have the fellowship with the Spirit, since you have the fellowship with the Spirit, God present with you every moment of every day, dwelling in your heart by his Spirit, since you have tenderness on compassion, since God has begun to change your motives and change your heart and give you love, since God has done all these things, can't you love one another? Can't you be at unity? If you've received these things, then be united with each other. Unity is a, is a defining feature of Christianity. And without unity, that is evidence that perhaps we're not part of the body of Christ at all. Unless we've got unity with one another, perhaps we've not got that peace with God that we claim. How do we achieve unity then? Well, it's instructive that that one of the first things he says is make my joy complete by being like minded. An important part of what it is to be united as Christians is our beliefs must line up with each other. We must know who Jesus Christ is. We must know what the gospel is. We we must know who God is and and how we uh, approach him and what salvation is. So we don't pretend to be united to anybody who, who takes the name of Christian. Because there are many who take that name who are not truly saved, who are not following what God teaches in his word. So having the right understanding, having the right beliefs is important. But really Paul's focus is not so much on beliefs, but upon uh, love. Paul's focus here is that unity is achieved through selfless love. Verse three, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. These are two very similar ideas. One sort of deals with people's aims and ambitions. One sort of deals with people's assessment. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. I'm going to do this because this is what I want. This will serve me. This is the best for for me and my desires and my goals. Do nothing out of vain conceit. Vain conceit is uh, a selfish pride. I am better than other people. We're going to do it this way because I say it should be done this way. My views are more important because I'm the oldest. I've had more experience. I've seen this happen before. I ought to be recognised and honoured and served in the church. That's what vain conceit is. Paul says do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, he flips them both over. Don't think of yourself with pride, vain conceit. Think of others better than yourselves. Think in humility. And don't act with your own interests at heart, that selfish ambition. Act out of the interests of other people. Put them first. Unity is achieved when believers live in humble service of one another. 
Unity is achieved when believers look out for the interests of others before themselves. Unity is achieved when believers consider others better than themselves. Now that means that unity is our responsibility. If there is disunity, it's not because of that person over there. They just need to be a bit more godly. They just need to be a bit more accepting or loving or kind. Unity starts with us. We have a responsibility. Don't act out of selfish ambition. Don't act out of vain conceit. Act out of humility, looking for the interests of others. The responsibility to achieve unity doesn't start with other people. It's not their fault. Yet, it starts with us. Now, if you've got a service sheet in front of you, you will notice that I've titled this sermon, A Threat to Our Unity. What do I mean by that? Normally, the biggest threat to the unity of believers is division. When people act like verse 3, when people act out of selfish ambition, my ideas first, we'll do it this way because I'm the best, then you get division. I want to sing these sorts of songs. I don't like the modern music, I like the older music, or vice versa. You get a division, you get a split. I want to do it this way, no, I want to do it this way. You get a split. But there's another way that unity is threatened. Not by division, but by distance. If believers are distanced from one another, how is it that they're going to put verse 4 into action? If believers are not engaging with each other, how can they look out for each other's interests? If believers are not interacting with each other, how can they share the same love? If believers are not working together, how can they be acting out of the same goal and spirit and purpose? Distance is not the normal threat to unity, but it's just as significant a threat. When believers are distanced from one another, our unity is threatened. And this is not just a corporate threat. It's not just, ah, this is a goal that the church ought to have. Hmm, that's a shame, it's not able to achieve it. Because we're all locked down, we're all separated from each other. Well, the elders better think about something quick. No, it's not just an issue for the church. This is an issue for each individual within the church as well. Our lack of unity affects us as believers, as individuals. How many times have you heard the illustration of believers being like little coals in a fire? And when the coals are all together, or when the lumps of wood are all together, the fire really burns, and the flame takes hold, and it's hot, and it's strong. But when you take out one coal from the fire and put it on the hearth, or on the stone, or on the wall, then the fire begins to dwindle from that coal. It begins to get cooler. The flame dies down. It doesn't happen straight away, but it happens gradually, over a matter of minutes or, or even hours. Slowly, slowly, it gets cooler and cooler and cooler until the fire has gone out altogether. No one can pinpoint the exact time the fire went out. But you know it's gone out because it's been removed from the fire. What this lockdown has done to us is, in effect, separated all the coals out from the fire. It's put us at risk of of being totally isolated from each other. Two metres apart, if you like. 
And the effect, I think, is being seen. The, the flames on those little coals are beginning to dwindle. Whether you feel it or not. You see it shown, for example, in the way we meet together as a church. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not drawing rules down. I'm not, uh, I'm not being dogmatic about what you must and mustn't do or else you're not a Christian. That's not my aim here. My aim here is to show you the risk of not being united with other believers. But think, when we first went into lockdown, the, the first week together, we had a prayer meeting with, with over 75 screens on, on the Zoom meeting. It was wonderful. We, we had more people at that prayer meeting than we've ever had at any other prayer meeting since I've been here at, at this church. And perhaps we thought, well, that there might be some advantages to meeting online. But we'd only just been removed from the fire then. We'd only just had a week apart from one another. And yet now, over time, we go to the same prayer meetings, we have the same online meetings together, and fewer and fewer people join. Home groups are similar. Fewer and fewer people uh, are able to join in. Phone calls are similar. The first week I was ringing around people and I couldn't get through because they were on the phone to other believers, talking, seeing how, how each other were. And now I hear that people are not speaking to other believers for weeks at a time. Watching this service perhaps might be the only Christian input they get. Now I know there's all sorts of reasons why people aren't able to, to log on to those meetings or, or, or watch the, the online services on a Sunday as they're broadcast. Life happens, I get that, and I understand it. But I also recognise that part of, part of the way I've seen the flame dwindling in my life is not just because life happens. But part of it is because I've been removed from that fire. And it's so much harder to, to devote ourselves to service, to devote ourselves to loving one another. It's so much harder to put the interests of other people first when, when we're not seeing those people regularly. When we're not engaging with them, when we're not interacting with each other. And so this isn't to say, look, you better log on this Thursday. Or you better start watching these videos on a Sunday as soon as they're broadcast. That's not the point. My, my point is to say, do you see, do you see how this lockdown is beginning to affect us as believers? How it's beginning to cause us to dwindle? Who of you could say that your faith has grown stronger since the lockdown began? Who of you can say that your love for Christ has increased? Who, who of you can say that you've become more fervent, more zealous in your service of God. There is a real threat to our unity, which is not just a threat to the church corporate. It's a threat to each one of us as individuals. It's a threat to our spiritual well-being. What do we do about it? How ought we to respond? We can't meet after all. And I'm not suggesting that we you know, all start meeting up in the church or anything like that. We ought to stick to the rules that the government are setting down. It's a loving thing to maintain the, the required distance to prevent the, the virus from spreading. But rather than just jumping straight in at offering recommendations or practical advice or, or writing down a to-do list, let's go back to the passage. 
Paul shows us that selfless love is achieved when we imitate Christ. Verse 5, he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You know, this issue of unity isn't fixed by imposing rules or or, uh, having a to-do list for us to do. This unity will be achieved by having our own attitudes, our own hearts changed as we become more and more like Christ. And that happens when we consider him more, when we look to him more. Let's read verse 6 to, six to 8 again. Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, sometimes part of the excuse that we give ourselves for not interacting with other believers is that, well, I don't feel like I need to talk to them. I don't feel like I particularly need encouragement from other people today. What was Christ's attitude? Did he think about what he needed, about what he wanted? He had all that he needed. He had no need to come to earth. He had no need to die for us. He had no need to become a servant. He didn't do it for his needs. He did it for the needs of those that he came to serve. And so a more Christ-like attitude, rather than saying, I don't need a phone call today. I don't need to join in with the meeting today. I don't need to, uh, to watch the, 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 the service online today. Rather than saying, I don't need, consider what might others need. How might I be able to encourage others? Who might need a phone call, a text, a letter, whatever else? Sometimes one of the excuses we can make for ourselves is, look, it's all well and good talking about unity, but but nobody's spoken to me once in this lockdown. Ten weeks I've had it and nobody's picked up the phone to speak to me. People should be calling me. People should be helping me out first. Jesus didn't let what was rightfully his hinder him from becoming a servant to others. Jesus was in very nature God. He had the worship of angels. He ought to be able to demand the worship of all of mankind. And yet he didn't let what was rightfully his stop him from being a servant to others. Yes, we ought to be loving you, if that's how you're feeling. If you felt neglected, we ought to be spending more time looking out for you, taking your interests as our own. And we're sorry for the times that we've not. But don't let that stop you from taking the initiative and caring for others. Have the attitude of Christ, who considered others before himself. Another one of the excuses we might make for ourselves is, look, I'm not going to join in with the meeting tonight because I'm too tired. It's going to be too hard. I've had a busy day. It's going to be a faff getting the, getting the computer out and turning everything on. Jesus didn't limit himself to what was easy. Verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And so to have the attitude of Jesus doesn't just say, 
well, I'll join in with those things that are easy enough for me to do. To have the attitude of Jesus says, I'm willing to put myself out. I'm willing to take an extra step to achieve this unity, to achieve this love, to serve others in this way. What was the result of Jesus' humble service? Verse 9, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think Paul's point here in quoting these verses is is twofold. One, he shows that Christ's humility, Christ's service led to glory. And in the same way, he invites us to a life of service of God so that we might share in the glory of Jesus to come. Humility leads to glory. But also, I think what Paul's showing us is Christ's glory leads to unity. It's the glorification of Christ, giving him the name that is above every name, that is the means that God uses to then draw everything in creation to himself. That Christ might be the one who fills everything in every way. That God might be all in all because Christ has the victory. Verse 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. There is no one who will not bow the knee to Jesus. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' humble service was used by God to bring about the peace, the reconciliation that he was aiming for. And so what will be the result of our humble service God can use your act of love God can use your text message your phone call God can use your concern your encouraging word your prayers for people God can use your participation in our group events together to protect and to preserve the unity of the church to encourage believers and to strengthen your own faith as well while you're at it. We ought to love one another, having the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. I suggest that what we do now is we're going to a time of prayer, and we're going to leave a time for you to pray at home on your own there. Pray for this issue of unity. Pray that God would protect our church, protect the unity that we enjoy, Pray for our own spiritual health, that we wouldn't grow cold, even while we're distanced from other believers. Pray that we would have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Perhaps you might use this time to pray in confession for the ways that you and I have failed in our responsibilities here. Perhaps you might use this time to give thanks for those who have been an encouragement to you, who've been diligent in looking out for your interests. Perhaps you might use this time to ask for grace and guidance, that God would show you how you can be more loving, more united to other believers in the future. And above all else, ask God to protect the unity of the church for the sake of his glory. Let's pray at home now.
But I'd like to lead us together in prayer for those same issues. Our Lord God, Heavenly Father, we begin this prayer with a with a note of thankfulness. We are thankful for Jesus' work and life. We are thankful that he left the glories of heaven, the worship of angels, the intimate fellowship that he has had with you since the for all of eternity. He left those wonders and those glories and that comfort and the peace and he became the poorest. He became despised. He was humiliated as well as becoming humble in and of himself. He became like one of us. He shared in our sorrows and in our difficulties and in the hurt that we face. And he remained obedient to you throughout his life, under every temptation, under every attack. He remained obedient even to the point of death for a crime that he didn't commit, suffering judgment for sins that weren't rightfully his. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the peace that we have with you through the work of Jesus Christ. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. He is our mediator. Our prayers even now are brought to you through him. He is our sacrifice of atonement. He is our righteousness that enables and qualifies us to stand in your presence. His death is the means by which we are brought into relationship with you. And we praise you for the promise, the hope of salvation, restoration, really. That your dwelling will one day be with man. That you will be our God. That we will be your people. And that every sin that bars the way, every darkness, every wickedness, will be swallowed up in your righteousness and your light and your purity. And every tear will be wiped away. We look forward to that day of unity. And we pray as we wait, Father, for our unity as a body of believers. We confess our own failings. We confess that at time our, our actions and our thoughts are so driven by selfish ambition, vain conceit. And it has caused us to, to neglect our responsibilities, to be thinking of ourselves rather than others. And to allow ourselves to drift apart from the body that you have placed us in. We thank you that we can find forgiveness. We thank you that you offer forgiveness. And we come before your throne now to find grace. To help us in our time of need. We need that grace. To open our eyes to see the temptations of sin. Our own evil desires, our own selfishness dragging us away from this responsibility we have. And we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, guide us, lead us into the way you want us to live. Help us to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Open our eyes to see him more fully in your word, to see his goodness, his gentleness and his compassion. Fill our minds with meditations of him. Remind us of his sacrifice and love and help us to imitate them in our lives. Cause us to love one another just as he has loved us. 
Move us by your spirit. And protect our unity as a body of believers. That we might be one in spirit and in purpose. That we might share the same love with one another. That we might be like-minded. Even even through this distance that we're having to endure at the moment. Father, protect us. For the sake of your church. For the sake of us, your children. For the sake of the witness of the gospel that is seen when believers are united together. Ultimately, for the sake of your glory in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn will uh, continue that uh, <clears throat> that same prayer that we've just been praying, asking Jesus to teach us his way. <clears throat>